Support comes from Empower Missouri's Week of Action with in-person and virtual advocacy training for affordable housing, criminal justice, and food security initiatives March 25th through 28th. Registration at empowermissouri.org WOA. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. In just a few months, Missouri Republicans will go to the polls to choose their nominee for the U.S. Senate. And there's a host of factors that could determine the outcome of a wide-open primary. To break things down, we talk with former State Senator John Lamping about the GOP primary's dynamics and a host of other issues that are gripping Missouri politics at the moment. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. We have a very special guest today in the studio. The last time he was on the show, he was the state senator for Missouri's 24th district, and it was in 2014. Amazing. And uh, our guest today is? John Lamping. And I'm really appreciative of him coming back because he's not in office anymore. Some of our best guests that we've had on this show have been former office holders that still pay attention to Missouri politics. I think about a year after you were on, we had Jason Crowell on the show, oh, and yeah, it was Jason's like great. one of the one of the best shows we've ever had. Yeah. Because at that point, with the exception of him coming back in 2017 to shake up the low income housing tax credit program, he's pretty much out of politics and. Oh, really... but Jason's watching. He's yeah, watching. He pays attention. I talk to Jason yeah, often enough. But, but he has good perceptions. And yes, he does. I, I think that the reason I wanted to bring you back is, you know, we have this crazy U.S. Senate race going on right now. You definitely have been paying attention to it. You have either peripheral or personal relationships with a lot of the candidates. But just just to make sure, you haven't endorsed anybody yet. No, and nor will I in this race. Yeah. So I think that makes you a good person to talk about the dynamics <laughs> of this. Or, well, that, at least that's my thought now. Ask me again at the end of the show and right. maybe I'll have a different opinion. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you, before we get into the individual candidates, what is kind of your sense of where this GOP Senate primary is right now? Well, I think the race is really a race between Schmidt and Hartzler. Um, I think uh, Greitens uh, represents kind of the populist nationalist message in this race. And that's a message that is sw- sweeping the country in Republican Party circles but the rest of the candidates here in Missouri are not interested in taking up those issues. Uh, that's actually given room for Greitens to fill that, that ideological space. And if you listen to him, that's what he's all about. Um, again, that's a very popular, popular message. And in a lot of places around the country, that message itself is getting Trump's endorsement. But Eric has you know, got a, high, a ceiling of maybe you know, 25 or 30, and he's uh, a floor. We're going to find out what his floor is after the last few weeks. And the, what's happened is that Schmidt and Hartzler have both organized pretty effective-looking campaigns, and we're four months out, and I think we're just going to see a traditional political campaign between the two of them. 
And unless uh, unless something crazy happens, I think the winner will be amongst those two. So we're going to go backwards. We're going to get to Schmidt, Hartzler, and Greitens at the end of this line of questioning. But I, I want to go backwards about this field, which, by the way, I think has 20 or 21 candidates. Right. Um, and I want to actually talk about the non-major candidates first, which may seem counterintuitive. But, you know... In a crowded primary where there are multiple legitimate candidates and in a possibility that the race could be decided by one, two, three percentage points, I'm looking at the fact that there are like 14 or 15 candidates who have no chance of winning this race, but who still may get one, two, three percent each. So how does that have any impact on the final result? I think not. I mean, the ones you're, you're talking about are, are the ones that individually can't get more than a, a fraction of a percent. And so you're talking about a cumulative effort. I think there, uh, with with all these higher profile, can- we've got like one upper tier, and then we've got a kind of a middle tier. And what they all, both tiers have in common is they're going to spend a tremendous amount of money. And so when we get down to the very end, if, uh, you know, I always, I always ref- people ask me, well, why is this person running for the Senate? Or why is this person running for governor? Some person that's, you know, like a local homeroom like, teacher. Or like something. a Leonard, Leonard Steinman or and something it's just like so, that. It's just so, um, you know, when somebody does their eulogy, it's in the, it, you know, when they die and somebody talks about them, they talk about, about the fact that they ran for governor or U.S. senator someday. That's all it is, really. It's a vanity thing. Um, but I think in this race, they'll, ha- they'll, ha- they'll have minimal impact because so much money is going to be spent by at least you know, five or six candidates. And I think that cumulatively it could be, you know, half a percent, but nothing more than that. So let's get to the major candidates. Mark McCloskey, he's an attorney. He gained national fame or infamy, depending on how you want to describe it, when he and his wife were photographed and videotaped holding guns outside uh, their homes as protesters walked to then-Mayor Lyda Krusen's house. Now, when McCloskey got into this race last year, and I was talking with people at like Lincoln Days in 2021. A lot of them felt that McCloskey was like a major candidate because of his fame in conservative circles. But it seems that looking at polling and fundraising numbers, he just hasn't really reached that top tier. Why do you think he is where he is right now? Well, only because he's put in the effort. You know, when you mentioned 2021 Lincoln Days, well, there's Lincoln Days in 2021 and Lincoln Days in 2022, and it's always easy to get people to come speak in an election year. It's impossible to get them to come speak two years before an election year. And Mark has committed himself to that, and he's gone out on the stump, and he's done. He's he spoke wherever he's asked to speak, and he's given a really good talk. He presents himself as a complete outsider, but an outsider that has a close personal relationship with Trump. He raised money for Trump in both of his election cycles. And he's got nice stories to tell, and and he's told them well. And I think that he's viably gonna, you know, he's gonna get two or three percentage points if he continues out on this pace. And, and I, I think he's worth like twenty or thirty million dollars. Couldn't he self fund and be more impactful than two or three percent? Well, I think if he hasn't figured it out already, he he should know soon enough that he really doesn't have a chance of winning this race, and like no chance of winning. But I think, um, you know, maybe at his eulogy, it'll be more than just one sentence when he talks about having run, because I think he will run and he will get some votes. And he plays up. But he plays a role in this uh, in this race. He's he's an, he's a from the eastern side of the state. And that's a, a theme throughout this whole campaign. that's an issue. And um, and he's an outsider and he he's a, has a friendship with Trump. And I think all those things are positives. And I think he'll end up with two or three points. So let's talk about Senate President Pro Tem Dave Schatz. And 
again, somebody who is not very well known. I mean, one of the things that I think our listeners need to understand here is just because you're president pro tem of the Missouri Senate does not mean you're a household name. Just ask Steve Gaw in 2000. Ask, ask all the ex Mike Mike <laughs> Gibbons, yeah, all, all, right. with the exception of Peter Kinder, who right. won lieutenant governor. Right. He's already put in $2 million of his own money. And granted, we're talking about a Senate race where $2 million is a rounding error, but that's still a significant amount of money to run TV and radio ads. Like, where does he factor into this contest? Well, again, I, I think with that kind of money spent, and he has a base of support. He's out of Franklin County. He's a, he's a, you know, blue, he owns a blue-collar business, and, and there's a certain type of um, Republican that really would look and admire him for his professional success. Uh, I think a lot of the, the, the conservative Democrats over the last 10 or 20 years that have gone over to the Republican Party would really relate to Dave. I've come to believe, I've come to be of the opinion that really what he's doing in the U.S. Senate race is just a prelude to running statewide in 2024. Um, you know, the $2 million he'll spend, it'll, it'll get his name out there. He'll be on the debate stages if there's debate stages. And uh, he'll introduce himself. And it's okay to introduce yourself in this race and to not win. Uh, especially in the think about it, he really only is campaigning for six or seven months. So he's not even sacrificing all that much uh, in terms of the campaign itself, which can be really difficult. And then I would be shocked not to see him put his name in the ring for something like lieutenant governor in 2024. And in that race, in lieutenant governor's race, he may not even have to spend that much money having spent what he did in this U.S. Senate race. So let's talk about the candidate that I find to be the most fascinating out of the bunch, and that's Congressman Billy Long. Um I think he kind of straddles between the second and tier and the main tier. And I'll just be brutally honest here. If Trump doesn't endorse him, I think he's a second tier candidate. I think if he does endorse him, I think he's in the same tier as Schmidt, Hartzler and Greitens. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he's guaranteed to win, as I'll ask in a second. That's my observation. What's kind of your feeling of where Congressman Long falls in this race. I, I felt all along that if Trump were to endorse Billy, that Billy would would probably win the race. I, Billy is a very authentic human being. His first run for office was Congress ten years ago. He's a self-made person. He's a he's a likable guy. And uh, his, his and tweets have been amazing as of late. They're a little psychedelic. But have you seen his tweets yes, about I, about like? I mean, they're well, he's they're, attacking the other candidates through his tweets a little bit. Yeah, I, I think that. Uh, he clearly is drinking a lot of caffeinated beverages at one o'clock in the morning. But continue. Well, he, so Billy's not he's he's completely anti-establishment. And the mistake I think that he made is that he didn't adopt this kind of populist nationalist language that Greitens has taken on. That message is very, very strong. And Billy doesn't really articulate that message so specifically. This is more of a general, hey, I'm anti-establishment because establishment is horrible. And, you know, he's kind of anti-swamp, that kind of thing. But. You know, you can see by the pres the President Trump's tweets that he's dying to endorse Billy, but Billy can't get uh, into into a lane where it looks like on his own he can get eight or ten percent. Uh, and so, uh, and it's getting late now. I think that we're the closer we get to the end, Trump's endorsement may may help the top two people move ahead of each other, but I don't think it's enough to push Billy ahead three or four spots. Yeah, that was going to be my next question because I do think that there is this feeling that in Missouri. Where President Trump, whether you like him or not, probably had the biggest symbiosis with Republican voters. Maybe Reagan is the only other comparable when you look at the actual results. 
But, like, I think that there is this myth that, like, his endorsement automatically means that somebody wins a primary because that's not necessarily true. Madison Cawthorn was not endorsed by Trump and he beat Trump's candidate. He also has endorsed complete duds like Mo Brooks Mm -hmm. in Alabama. And frankly, David Perdue is looking like a big dud right now and is on pace to being shellacked by Kemp in Georgia. Yeah, so the, you watch that the, Trump is uh, very involved now in all different types of races. And actually, somebody talked, uh, it was described, the, the group of people that are around him is kind of like the endorsement consultant class now. Yeah. There's a whole group of people, uh, most of whom are working for one of the candidates here, trying to get Trump to endorse. And Trump t- Trump tends to endorse. It's not ideological at all. Sometimes it's who can be the front runner. He likes, he likes the glamour person. He likes Herschel Walker. He likes attractive female candidates. And then he he also endorses people that are against people he has a, a strong vendetta against. The one thing that's interesting is that Trump has made no secret of the fact that if he were to be elected president again, is he does not want Mitch McConnell involved in power. Mm-hmm. And so Greitens uh, recognized that idea and came out early, early, I think last fall, and said that he would not vote for McConnell. And I'm, again, I'm shocked that none of the other candidates are smart enough here in Missouri th- to echo that. I, we're going to talk more about Greitens in a minute. Right, right. But, but like... My understanding is like voting for majority leaders, not like Speaker of the House, like it's done internally. So if let's just say Greitens wins and it's like 50 to one for McConnell. Does that really matter in whether McConnell serves or not? Yeah, I've, I've heard that pushback. But the reality of the situation is, is you get into a Senate majority leader contest and you may walk out of the door where it's unanimous. But along the way, it's been contentious. And there are other people, I'm sure, in that caucus today that are also sick and tired of Mitch McConnell. But they're not going to go. Uh, they, they care more about their committee assignments. They're not going to go against him unless there's a path to victory. I want to talk about Eric Schmidt first, because you actually served in the Missouri Senate with him. Um, The thing that we were talking about before the show is he has never actually run in a Republican primary with opponents before. Is that going to be a problem for him? I know Eric. I consider Eric a personal friend. I've known him from when I first got into politics. I served all four of my years. I served alongside Eric. And uh, Eric is a professional politician. He he works very hard at his craft. He embraced fundraising very early on. Uh, he does not he, he does not like to have an opponent for whatever office he's running for. He wants to have as weak as opponent as possible. And he knows that there's ways to do that kind of behind the scenes, deal making, that kind of thing. Eric, uh, you know, ran for Senate the first time. And the, uh, his Democratic opponent was offered a, a really choice assignment on a, com- a paid commission, and, and that cleared the field for Eric. And then he didn't even have to run for re-election the second time, which is very unusual for a state senator in the St. Louis area. So he's very adept at clearing the field. He ran for the Treasury, raised $5 million to run for the Treasurer's office, where no one's ever spent more than a million dollars ever. And he, um, and he did, a, you know, did a deal to, to, to get put into the attorney general's race. And and then when he ran statewide, there was really not a race. Uh, there was never a primary, and the race wasn't even real. So, so Eric uh, is he he's been loath to have people take shots at him. Others around uh, in, in the Senate would have, he was relatively thin-skinned at times, but he knows what this is all about. He's prepared himself for a long time to run for this office. He's you know you see him fundraising. He'll be the top fundraiser by far in traditional sense, meaning going out not just pack. I, I money, think but the, I think his pack has raised like. Three or four million dollars. Yeah, no, it, he he is hardwired to do this. Uh, that that aspect of the of the um, 
of the campaign. He's he's not a risk taker politically. He's very uh, methodical. He he supports things that are very popular, and then he stays on them. Uh, and so, I think it I, is it an issue that he's um, he's never never had an opponent. I, I think. Maybe, but I think he prepared himself to be attacked. He's prepared himself for what's coming. I, mean, I think that the attacks are going to be like he was too moderate in the Senate and they're going to point to votes. And the whole 2011 Eritropolis situation, I'm sure, is going to get exploited. I mean, it already kind of is right now. It, are those overcomable obstacles? Or do you we'll hear- see. I, th- there's two problematic issues. Uh, one is every Republican in the, in the caucus at the time uh, voted to allow Smithfield Foods to sell themselves to the Chinese. This is something the Farm Bureau lobbied for. It's something that Smithfield Foods themselves lobbied for. And at the time this decision was made, all Republicans vote to override, voted to override Jay Nixon. It was an idea, well, you know, we're a free country. You can sell Were your you property. in the Senate when that I happened? I was in the Senate. Did you, all of us, did you vote to override that? All of us voted to override okay. that vote. So that's, that is simple and easy to understand, and that will be used— like a, like a hammer on him all across the I, state. I got to ask this question, though. If a Polish company had bought Smithfield instead of a Chinese one, do you think this would be an issue that anyone would use as an attack? Uh, obviously not. Uh, what, what, what's different now than then, and this is 2011, 2012, 13, that period, is that the, the whole country was still trying to figure out how to do business with China, all of com- uh, you know commerce... A chamber of Commerce is all around the country, National Chamber of Commerce. The whole country was kind of hardwired into doing business with them. The Aerotropolis, the China hub uh, legislation that he carried aggressively for three years, would have allowed for flights in and out of China. And, I, and I'm not certain on this, but I think it was in and out of Wuhan. So had that passed, can you imagine what would have been the case if we had flights coming in and out of Wuhan during during the COVID? But that was then. This is now. And now that's a very detrimental and easy to understand. It's a great 30-second uh, attack ad. And I think he's going to be hit over the head time and time again. Now, he knows that. The campaign knows yeah. that he's, uh, he, you, know, he, you know, the fact that he was a moderate Republican. Well, he's moderate in the sense that he was well, a Chamber I mean, of Commerce Eric Republican. Eric was a liberal Democrat for a while. So, I mean. Right, right. I mean, that's that's a that's overcomable, obviously. Right. So that that's a nuanced thing. And, you know, and most primary voters or most voters in general, they, they don't have an attention span to get into nuance. But what's easy to understand is you voted to sell our farms to China. You voted to bring flights in from Wuhan. And therefore, I'm, I'm against you. We'll be right back after this quick break with former state senator John Lamping. St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East. We put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts. And we're back on Politically Speaking with John Lamping. He used to be in the Missouri Senate, but now is like a, a, a wine grape grower and a financial <laughs> so advisor. I moved, so I've, I've always been a financial advisor, and I, I returned back to that after I came out of the Senate. But then I moved my family and I. We moved out to Augusta in 2017, mm-hmm. and we, uh, we grow grapes, uh, so we have a small vineyard. And we sell to a local uh, winery, and uh, the one that's not owned by Hoffman, and uh, and so that's what we do. And uh, and from there, on top, of, I would say I'm on top of the hill. I get to watch Missouri politics yeah. from afar, which it, is a great place to be. Very much so. So let's talk about the two other candidates in the race. So Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler 
seems to have a lot of momentum right now. Um, her fundraising, even before Holly endorsed her, was actually really, really good. Like she was pulling in $700,000 quarters and people were like, wow, I didn't know Vicki Hartzler could raise that much money. And I think it's pretty obvious now that a lot of, of the state's Republican heavyweights are behind her. Josh Hawley, as I mentioned, Kit Bond, who is still pretty influential in Republican circles. The other thing that I think she has going for her is she has a lot of credibility as a social conservative. Like, where do you think that she stands in this race right now? Well, she's the perfect candidate. She's a clean slate. She served six years in Missouri's House. She served 10 years uh, in the Congress. She is not controversial in any way, shape, or form. She's very uh, modest and humble in her approach to politics. It just so happens that, uh, you know, her brand of social uh, conservatism, you know, uh, anti-abortion and really and a non-LGBTQ supporter, um, she's at the perfect perfect time now to be that, right? So we're this is a year we're probably going to have Roe v. Wade. Republican primary voters are going to be in favor of Roe v. Wade being overturned. That's where she is on that position. And where, you know, this whole um, issue surrounding the um, the introduction of, of transgenderism into, into, you know, pre-K is it allows for her to be adamantly opposed to LGBTQ and, and be in, a, in the right lane at the right point in time. So I think she, she catches those two things perfectly. She is the establishment candidate, make no doubt. I mean, we've had um, Senator Bond has publicly endorsed her. For those that don't know, Senator Bond is uh, his and people around him are very, very large uh, lobbyist here at the state and the federal level. Uh, the Blunt family is certainly behind Vicki, which means Mitch McConnell is behind Vicki. They, they're smart enough not to say these things out loud because the primary voters aren't big fans of either of those two. She, she is somebody who you, she will be a very quiet, safe vote, and she will listen to what all the lobbyists around her have to say. I, I know that the voting, the GOP primary voters are probably older, and I would say that they're not in favor of LGBTQ rights. But I've run into a lot of people who are my age, I'm 37, and their views of gay, lesbian, people who are transgender, even if they're Republican, it's just not really the same as like what Hartzler is espousing. Is it possible that could, in a really close race, that could actually be a detriment to her if like a younger Republican voter looks at what she's saying as like, I'm just not enthused by that message of being anti-LGBTQ. No, it won't be. Uh, it won't be an issue in this race because uh, look, all the candidates are going to be adamantly against. Uh, they're all. They're all for the Florida bill that kept that keeps this education out of K through third grade. That's going to be part of their campaign. That's part of what they've got to say to be to seem to be credible. So. There, there have been cycles where to be a more moderate, socially conservative Republican is what the electorate seems to be looking for that in that cycle. But in this cycle, that is not the case at all. She fit her very um, conservative to the right views on these issues fit perfectly with, the, with where the electorate is this time around. All right. Let's talk about Eric Greitens a little bit more in depth. Now, just for our listeners, you were a supporter of Eric Greitens' gubernatorial campaign in 2016, but you... Are again are not supporting him this time, and you are not support. You're just an observer. Yeah, my relationship with Eric Greitens, I I was still in the Senate. I met him for the first time. He was kind of, again kind of a clean slate. Uh, we spent a good six months kind of bringing him up to speed on all the issues. I officially was the chair of his party to uh, to committee to consider running for office. 
He obviously won the race. Uh, my rationale for getting behind him was I, um, I, I really believed that the policy things that he would do and uh, would be uh, uh, very conservative, they were. And a lot of the people that I uh, served with and around and people that helped me, they became part of his administration. And so that's my relationship with him. Uh, what, what's transpired since, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not publicly supporting Eric. I do believe, though, I'm, I'm very much in the kind of the populist na- nationalist la- uh, lane. That message that he's carrying, I really wish the rest of the other candidates would listen to it. That, that message itself is worth 10 or 20 points, regardless of who's carrying it. Mm-hmm. But um, so that's that's why I have no problem with him staying in this race, because I think that message needs to be out there. But I'm afraid it's going to be uh, drowned out by the traditional Missouri Republican Party campaign rhetoric. Do, do you feel that the affidavits that his ex-wife has submitted under oath, I mean, is, is the, are they so damaging to his campaign that he has no chance of winning? Or do you think that he could somehow overcome them with the pushback that he's doing? I think it's a it's just a traditional campaign um, action against him. It, it, and what mean what I mean by that is that this thing got thrown out into this uh, the ozone, and that's all he can talk about. He has to defend himself. It's and nobody hears anything else. People that support him and believe him say they, they listen to what he has to say. They go, oh my gosh, there's look, it, it, there's no way this is a coincidence. Okay, this is this was organized. It doesn't mean that it's not true. It just means that it was released uh, on a Monday morning a month ago. It was released very specifically to achieve what it's achieved. And so w- what that means for Eric Ryan's is Eric Ryan's can't talk about anything else, and nobody else hears anything else. And that's where I think he's probably hit his he's hit his ceiling early in this race. And twenty six and seven is not going to be enough to win. But I, I've seen his responses to it, and it really centers around this is a conspiracy to get me out of the race because Mitch McConnell fears me. He's not leading with no, I didn't push my wife down. No, I never physically or emotionally abused my kid. And I know that he's denied both of those things, but the fact that he's leading with this is a conspiracy, it does make you wonder whether they're true, especially since Sheena Greitens said those things under oath and Eric Greitens has never gone under oath with this case or the case in 2018. What do you say? What do you say to that? Well, I think that it, it's an instance where both both things may very well be, be true. And Eric's talking about the conspiracy part of it. And the conspiracy part of it is to the sense that, look, Mitch McConnell is fighting against this message all across the country, mm-hmm. not just in Missouri. And it is true that they cannot have Greitens be successful and they will, they will do all they can to eliminate him from this race. It's not him personally. It's him. It's the message he carries. Do you think that people are energized to fight against Greitens because they fear that he will be a weak general election opponent or because, A, they believe what Sheena said in that affidavit and they also believe what KS said in 2018. B, he was a governor who made lots and lots of enemies by not making friends with a lot of people and RC that people are just tired of Eric Greitens, and they just want him to go away and would rather not deal with him. Maybe that's why Josh Hawley doesn't want him in the Senate. Like, what do you think about that? Well, let me say people. So I think I think ordinary people, uh, voters, primary general election voters, the message he's carrying, they would rally behind that message. They 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 look at the two parties as a kind of a uniparty. Uh, it's a, it's a 
cartel, and they feel like they're on the outside looking in. So the people, people, I think, support and generally speaking, they support that message. Now, what you're referring to, though, I think, instead, is the political class. Yes. Okay, so the political class hates him for the same reason the political class hated Trump before 2016 and hate him even more once he got into office. Because what they know to be true, and this was proven true in Greitens' case when he was a governor, is he won't listen to the political class. He doesn't care what all the political consultants say. He doesn't care. I mean, look, the Blunt family are the largest lobbying family in the state of Missouri. Bonds are right behind them. Political operatives work for all the candidates. They want to be heard. Not only they want not just to be heard, they want to be able to, to successfully achieve the goals of their clients. And if Eric Reitens is a U.S. senator, he'll have no time for them and they'll have no influence with him. So that's the biggest reason they're trying to get him out of the race. Now, they'll say he'll lose in the, in the general election. Well, that's they're just trying to appeal to people's emotions. But the reason they don't like him is because he doesn't care what they think. Based off today, which is April 19th, 2022, who do you think will win the Republican primary? If the vote was next Tuesday, I think Vicky would win. Um, I, she's got tremendous momentum right now, and she's got the most powerful people behind her and the establishment, both establishment in Missouri as well as a national establishment. I have tremendous faith, though, in Eric Schmidt's campaign. I think the people in Jeff Rowe is running his campaign, but there are more than just Jeff Rowe working his campaign. I think they have to have a plan. They have to have an arc. Uh, and what you'll see, if, if I'm right, is you'll see Eric Schmidt will be within shouting distance all the way up to the very end, and then he'll win by four or five points if they've done it correctly. Uh, so they have not launched the the way they have not launched their plan yet. That's not part of the deal. What, what you want to do is you want to peak on election day. It's way too early. I think Vicky is riding a very high wave right now. If we held the election next Tuesday, she'd be the candidate. So in the last few minutes that we have, I want to go over a number of topics that I think we'll just deal with in quick bursts. Let's go to St. Charles. Mm -hmm. So there's a primary between Steve Ellman and State Senator Bob Onder. And this this race is interesting from afar. As a St. Louis County resident who lived in a place with very restrictive COVID regulations, it is kind of odd that Onder is running against Elman and basically saying that Elman is a COVID scold when it's widely perceived that St. Charles County did not really enact very strict regulations against COVID. It, it, that seems to be the main thrust of Onder's campaign beyond the fact that he's saying Elman's been there too long. Like, is that going to be a attractive message? Well, it remains to be seen. I, the, the, the general perception in St. Charles County was that St. Charles County did not take control of principally what went on in schools, masking in schools. That was where the issue, that's where the differential really is, that the, the parents themselves were adamantly against the masking going on in schools. And what Steve did is Steve fell back on kind of what the state was was recommending. So he didn't he didn't come out and, and, and assert himself as a county executive. Look, I like both these people a lot. Steve, I consider them both friends. I'm probably more ideologically aligned with Bob. I think Bob would be a great county executive. I do think Steve's been the county executive for 20 years, and it's time for a new blood. I think that would be a, that's, a, that's a good enough message. I also think St. Charles County is at a crossroads. When you go back to you know early 80s, and, you, and St. Louis County was kind of a 50-50. Maybe it was it was Republican leading. I mean, we had we had McNary as the county executive. Uh, Republicans in St. Louis County felt very comfortable in being Republicans in the majority. And if you look at St. Charles County now, it's it's Republican, but it's it's 
55, 60% Republican, and, and uh, we're at a crossroads in, uh, where I think that the county can make big changes. Steve's been there for 20 years. This will be an interesting race. I think right now, it's, uh, my understanding is that like Bob controls the west side of the county and, and Steve the east side of the county, and it's who can get their votes out. Hoping to get both of those candidates on before Election Day. R- redistricting, I know you're a seven-to-one person. Um, we had Bill Eigel on the show last uh, week, and I think he did actually a really effective job at articulating the seven to one message. So I want to give him a lot of credit for that. Um, I, I think that m- this is my prediction. I think that the end game is that it's a six two map with a more Republican leaning second district than what the House put out. But it will not look like what the Senate put out, which I, I said to Bill Eigel very bluntly, is a ridiculous-looking district that stretches from my house in Richmond Heights to northern Iron County. (laughs) Like, I I think that that district will not be the final district. Do you have any sense of where this is going to Gonna, gonna well, shake hopefully, hopefully it ends soon. Look, I'm for a seven-one map, but I, I was never, ever, ever, ever going to happen. Mike Parson is—he's uh, a governor who does not want to take the lead on anything. I'm not a big Mike Parson fan. Serve all four years with Mike too. Uh, there's a—it's re- ridiculous that, that he did not call a special session last year to do uh, to have this map uh, drawn. And the way we were going to get to a seven-one map in this state would be if, if Parson himself wanted that map. He never wanted that map, and so it was never going to happen. What? What I would have hoped uh, that the the advocates for seven one um, in this in principally the Senate, I would hope that they were advocating for seven one to get a stronger six two, and it remains to be seen. We haven't got the map drawn. We don't know that that uh, that Ann Wagner's district is stronger. It needs to be a much stronger. It's ridiculous the way it currently is drawn, and who knows? It, Jason, it sounds like maybe we're going to run the old districts in uh, in six months, seven months, and and look for a federal court to draw the new draw the new ones and. In the off year. Now, my final question for you is actually looking to 2024. And there is this shadow primary going on between Lieutenant Governor Mike Kehoe and Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft. I, I'm almost positive that both of them are going to run for governor. I think Kehoe has already announced. Ashcroft is probably going to announce after the 2022 election cycle. And I think that both of them bring some advantages to this race, like Kehoe is well known in mid-Missouri. He's going to get a lot of institutional support. But Jay Ashcroft has probably 100 percent name recognition. He I didn't actually know this until I checked. I believe that he got more votes than Robin Carnahan did in 2008. So like he's already proven that he can win by wide margins. Um, how do you think that this race is going to shake out in a couple of years? It remains to be seen what kind of campaign Jay is going to run. Uh, I know Jay a little bit, and I find him to be a very honorable person, an upstanding person who really does view political service purely as public service. He's not in it. I mean, he was the son of a, a very famous person. He knows what fame and notoriety brings to you. He's not seeking that out. He's seeking service. Mike Keogh has been campaigning for for governor since the day I met Mike Keogh in 2010. That's when he and I both were swept into office uh, Mike is a moderate. Mike is a conservative Democrat who is now a moderate Republican. Mike, there's a there's a, a textbook path to any statewide office. It's the one that Vicky's following now. But Mike Mike knows what this path is, and that is to understand and get to know and get the support of all the institutional groups to uh, to carry water in the legislature, which he has done on numerous occasions. 
um, to, to run statewide. He ran as lieutenant governor, so he's got high name ID. Mike works the state every single week. He's out two or three or four places working the state. He, it's no secret. And I'm he's, sure he's yeah. going to disagree that he's a conservative Democrat. He's going to probably claim that he's a very conservative Republican. Well, so. if you look at who supported Chris Coster in the race for governor in 2016, probably probably half to two thirds of the groups that endorse Chris Coster will be endorsing uh, Mike Kehoe this time around if they haven't done so already. And I think it's pretty safe to say. So like the NRA and the Farm Bureau, like those are pretty conservative groups. Cattlemen's Association, Cattlemen's Association. Uh, uh, soybean. I mean, one after the other. Like, look, uh, one of the reasons I was excited to meet Eric Reitens mm -hmm. when I did and mm -hmm. support Eric Reitens when I did is because Chris Koster was the de facto governor, and he had a lot of moderate Republicans that were privately supporting him. So, so Mike Keogh knows all those things. Mike Keogh lives in Jefferson City. He completely understands uh, Missouri politics. He'll be very, very formidable opponent. Uh, if you ask me to, t to guess today who's going to win, I'd say he's going to win. It, but it remains to be seen if Jay Ashcroft has a, the ability to run a, a campaign that he'll need to run, which is to be the true conservative and really kind of an outsider uh, to somebody who's very much an insider. I, I think it's going to be – the reason I'm actually excited for this race is it really has the potential to be a battle of ideas. And it may be less personal than the Senate race. And that is a genuine – I'm more of a policy person than a politics person generally uh, that's kind of exciting it is i, I, I it, hope it, i hope that i'm right on that and it doesn't turn into a mud fest but i think it could really be like a battle of ideas i, I think that's right i think if it's just the two of them and they square off um i think that it'll lend its i think jay will will jay will that's what jay will be and i think that he'll be willing to lose uh, on his ideas alone uh, but we'll see i mean that when you get when you when you go down the path of running and campaigning for offices for years after years after years, you're loath to lose, and at the eleventh hour, you're easily uh, talked into doing something you may otherwise not do in a, in a commerce situation. We, we shall see. Thank you so much for coming in for all of our stories. STLPR.org. Politically speaking, is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri St. Louis. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow John Lamping at. Uh, I'm on Twitter at John Lamping. We'll be back next time. So long. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio.